You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, Have we lost the art of disagreement? That's kind of the title I'm going with today, and it's sort of also what I'm talking about. They match-ish. You may have seen this photo recently. Um, It was posted on social media and um, was in the papers a few weeks ago. Uh, on the left, appropriately enough, um, SMH journalist Peter Fitzsimons. Um, on the right, a guy who I hear is running for re-election around here at the moment. Um, the two of them played rugby together decades ago, and they've remained friends even while disagreeing on pretty much everything since then. Uh, last month, they ran into each other at a Mossman cafe. Uh, they had a bit of a chat, um, a bit of a disagreement, Um, And then Fitzsimon's wife snapped this photo of the two of them together and they both posted it on social media as a kind of nod to the whole, look, we can disagree on things politically but not be mortal enemies, right? Um, Wrong, apparently. Fitzsimon's wrote in the Herald about uh, what happened next. He said, the response was fascinating. For much of it was dripping vitriol along the lines of how dare you sit next to that man. Why are you consorting with denialist monsters? I am so disappointed in you, I will have to reassess everything you've ever written. He says, Those, these were the printable ones. And this, friends, was simply for sitting next to Tony Abbott. As to how he copes with the vitriol that comes his way from actually being Tony Abbott, I'll never know. Uh, I think it probably isn't controversial to say that some things are wrong with our public conversation. Um, I suspect as well that we basically know what these are. Uh, We have our echo chambers, our social media silos, uh, even our neighbourhoods often segregated by income, lifestyle choices, political leanings. We have our tribes and our battle lines. We've cultivated a culture of outrage, of pouncing. Um, And this makes for a toxic culture, a culture of unhearing if we're waiting to pounce on others to prove our rightness and their wrongness, that proofs us very effectively against actually hearing things that we disagree with. This plays out in a lot of different ways. Uh, You know, stories about Twitter lynchings where people make the wrong joke or express the wrong opinion and the crowd descends on them. Um, They might lose their job, maybe their whole life gets derailed as a result. Stories about whether or not to give visas uh, to touring anti-vaccination campaigners. Stories about no platforming at universities. I don't know if you've heard this term, no platforming, um, where students protest against particular speakers coming to their campus at all, um, and they get disinvited um, because of their unacceptable views. Or even where Christian groups at various universities get investigated or delisted um, for... Uh, their tenets of belief and their desire to share those. There are any number of examples that we could pluck from the media from the last few years or even the last few months. But I think that we make a mistake if we imagine that this problem, the problem of kind of free speech, the problem of the lost art of disagreement, is a problem out there, um, one that's disconnected from the ways that we talk to or about each other around the dinner table, on social media, Uh, out loud at the TV, depending on what we watch. 
Um, really, when we get down to it, the question of freedom of speech and disagreeing well, the question of how we organise our life together so that we can disagree without breaking our life together, that's a question about my heart, about my conversations, about my relationships, how I respond to people who I think are really, really wrong about stuff. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that we are to speak the truth to one another in love. Speak the truth in love. Um, here's where we're going. I want to offer you a brief defense um, of why freedom of speech is so crucial, uh, which is essentially because as humans, we're actually naturally pretty bad at truth and we're pretty bad at love. Then I want to come to what the Bible's picture of God tells us about all this. Uh, freedom of speech is not exactly a term that crops up in Scripture, but an understanding of God's character will and ought to radically reorient the way that we respond to people we disagree with. So finally, I'm then going to propose a very sort of counterintuitive practice that I think is core to the Christian imagination and the Christian story as a way of responding when we find ourselves on the receiving end of other people's hostile speech or attempts to shout us down. So firstly, the case for freedom of speech. Uh, this rests really on the reality of fallen human nature, the problem of sin, the problem that's been called the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, we need free speech because we're bad at truth and we're bad at love. Uh, I'm going to enlist here the classic formulator of the case for free speech, John Stuart Mill, the 19th century philosopher who literally wrote the book on liberty, uh, he writes that while everyone well knows himself to be fallible, few think it necessary to take any precautions against their own fallibility or admit the supposition that any opinion of which they feel very certain may be one of the examples of the error to which they acknowledge themselves to be liable. There are many things um, about which I'm sure each of us wants to say, but I'm sure that I'm right about this thing. And we may very well be right about that, whatever it is. But Mill points out that no matter how certain we are, that is not a good enough reason to shut down those who disagree with us. He writes, first, the opinion which it is attempted to suppress by authority may possibly be true. Those who desire to suppress it, of course, deny its truth, but they are not infallible. They have no authority to decide the question for all mankind and exclude every other person from the means of judging. To refuse a hearing to an opinion because they are sure that it is false is to assume that their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. All silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. The response to our own fallibility is not to kind of throw up our hands in despair of ever really arriving at truth. The proper response to our limitations when it comes to knowing the truth is Humility. Um, interestingly, brief aside here, there is a very real sense in which increased knowledge will actually breed uh, increased humility. Um, this is Mount Stupid. Some of you might have seen this comic before. Um, you know, so the x-axis represents how much I know about something, the y-axis how willing I am to offer an opinion on that thing. Uh, I'm sure you get the idea. For many of us, certainly for me, Mount Stupid is very familiar territory. Um, my level of spluttering indignation about something is often in inverse proportion to how much I actually know about that thing. 
Uh, the more people know, the more they appreciate, and in a general way, how complex the issue is, how much there is to know still. Um, but before that humble part of knowing kicks in, there's often this kind of speed bump of ignorance. It's easy to be certain about things when you don't have too many pesky facts getting in the way of your certainty. You know, often it is the person at the table who knows most about the topic under discussion who will express themselves most gently with the most sympathy. Uh, Mill also points out that even if we are right about something, um, we still lose out by stifling the opposing point of view. Usually this is because when it comes to our beliefs and opinions, we're not usually talking about a conflict between one view that's 100% correct and another view that's 100% error. Uh, usually, Mill writes, the two sides share the truth between them. I think if we're honest, we can recognise that probably none of our opinions or beliefs is so perfect, is so um, aligned with reality that uh, it can't admit of, admit of any correction of any modification, even just a change in emphasis. By shutting down disagreement, we're not only excluding the possibility of being shown that we're wrong and coming to the truth that way, but also of having our own right beliefs made sharper and more complete. And going even further, Mill actually thinks that if we are 100% right about something, we still need to have our understanding of our own view sharpened by engagement with the opposite view. He says that he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. This means that we need freedom of speech. We need a generous, robust principle of letting others say things that we're violently opposed to because as fallen humans, we are bad at recognising our own fallibility and we're bad at truth. We actually need each other to arrive at truth. We also fail to love as we should. I think one of the most disturbing elements of the polarisation and kind of the culture of outrage that we're seeing, um, and if we're honest, that we're participating in, is what they imply about how we view uh, those we disagree with. Uh, Bill Clinton, of all people, has said, we only have one remaining bigotry we don't want to be around anybody who disagrees with us. And the thing is, it's become increasingly possible for us not to be around anybody who disagrees with us, uh, whether that's in our social circles or online. It is much easier to despise a group of people if you don't personally know anyone who belongs to that group, if they're a group of people kind of over there. Um, it's much easier to write them off, whether they're people who vote green or people who vote liberal, uh, people who disbelieve in evolution or in the safety of vaccines, uh, people who deny climate change, people who are climate change activists, theological conservatives, theological liberals, whoever it might be. It's much easier to write them off as idiots if they're people over there rather than real people with their own families, their own inner lives and gifts and sorrows and sense of humour right in front of me. One of the key features of the way that many of us talk to and about each other, um, online in particular, has become contempt. Uh, contempt is very different from disagreement and even from anger. Contempt makes real communication impossible. Uh, this is true on the personal as well as the public level. So John Gottman, who is a psychologist, he's spent decades 
um, researching marriage and relationships, uh, and he's done a lot of work on how destructive contempt is. His methods have a very high predictive accuracy for whether or not a couple is likely to divorce. Um, he can listen to couples, sit down and have a conversation about how their day was for an hour, um, and at the end of that time, he can predict with 90% accuracy whether or not they'll still be together in a few years from now. Um, he can take it down to 15 minutes of them talking, even three minutes, after three minutes of conversation between a husband and wife, he and his colleagues can still predict with 70% accuracy whether they're going to stay together or not. And one of the key predictors is whether or not contempt is present in the way that they talk to each other. What contempt communicates is, I don't care what you think, I don't really care about you, in fact, things would be better if you just weren't here. In this respect, at least, what is bad for marriages is bad for Twitter debates as well. If mutual contempt characterizes the way that we navigate our differences online or offline, if contempt becomes not just an occasional lashing out, but the common currency of public discourse, if millions of people think that millions of other people hold them in contempt, and would prefer that they just didn't exist, that becomes dangerous. In all of this, there's a real loss of imagination. When we try to shut down people who think differently from us and who say things that we profoundly disagree with, what we're really saying is, these people aren't worth convincing. They're not capable of changing their minds. They're not worth engaging with. I don't care why they think what they do. I just want them to stop doing it out loud somewhere I or other people can hear them. Our culture's ideal of tolerance um, is too often just a glorified indifference to other people. It is the opposite of love. Love will listen, it will give the benefit of the doubt, it will try to persuade, uh, it will be patient, it will be kind, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it always hopes, it always perseveres. It doesn't consider anybody as beyond the pale. So there's kind of the classic case for freedom of speech through this lens of what the Bible tells us about our fallen nature um, as human beings and through the biblical command to speak truth in love. But none of this so far is unique to a Christian view of the world necessarily. So what does the Christian faith specifically have to say about freedom of speech? Um, Firstly, and this is a really obvious point when we think about it, God is really quite into freedom of speech. Uh, he permits a whole lot of it in the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament is full of people like Job who are accusing God to his face of not playing fair. People like the prophet Habakkuk who is telling God he needs to get his act together and do something about the injustice that he sees everywhere around him. Uh, the psalmists are constantly complaining to God about other people's exercise of free speech. They're constantly saying things like, look, God, do you hear what they're saying about you? Aren't you going to do something? Um, are you just going to let them get away with that? Show them they're wrong. Smite them, you know? But God doesn't smite Job, and he doesn't smite Habakkuk, and uh, he doesn't seem to smite the people that the psalmists are complaining about. He does answer them in one way or another. He's not indifferent, swatting flies from a distance. 
but he doesn't punish them for disagreeing and, you know, not at all politely with the way that he's running the show. He is no insecure dictator. There is plenty of room um, for disagreement under his rule. Jesus as well forbears when people speak against him. You know, at his trial, as accusers are telling lie after lie about him, how does he respond? Just silence. Um, I'm not saying that we should never respond to speech we disagree with. I just want to note the kind of forbearance of Jesus in that situation. People's wrong or hostile words never put him in a flap. In a letter that um, Jesus' disciple Peter wrote to the early Christians, he points specifically to this forbearance as something that we should imitate in our own lives. Peter says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I wonder how often we resemble Jesus in that. Do we meet insult with insult, contempt with contempt? Or are we able to entrust ourselves to to relax into the will of the God who judges justly, in whom is found all truth and all justice. So in this sense, God routinely allows expressions of freedom of speech that tend to work us into a bit of a lather. Secondly, though, and more significantly, the testimony of the Bible is overwhelmingly that God's character is profoundly non-coercive. He doesn't force people. What I mean by this is that at the heart of every stage of salvation history of, you know, this big story that the Bible tells is a principle of non-coercion, of freedom, of profound human dignity, however you kind of want to conceptualize this. So at creation, he lets his creatures choose to do evil, um, to screw up his world, to screw over each other. At redemption, he continues to allow us to choose whether to reject him or whether to love him freely. In our sanctification, as he transforms people who have agreed to let him be God over our lives, um, even then he doesn't just take over. He works in oh-so-gradual ways, you know, uh, infuriatingly gradual ways sometimes, it feels to us. He doesn't just short-circuit our decision-making or our growth. That is not the kind of relationship that he wants with us. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way in his novel, The Screwtape Letters. Um, So this is writing from the perspective of kind of a senior devil to a junior tempter. Um, And he writes about the enemy, so that is God. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravish, he can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, 
He is pleased even with their stumbles. Obviously, the Bible is full as as well of some pretty forceful things that God does. He is not passive. But for an all-knowing, all-powerful creator, this principle of restraint at the heart of his dealings with us, his creatures, is very surprising and I think very moving, actually. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, as we heard him read earlier, speaks these words from God to people who he could presumably just, you know, squish, just force into line. Instead, he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. He invites, he appeals, he urges them to come to him. This is a pleading of a God who absolutely knows what's best for his people and absolutely refuses to force it on them. And, you know, Jesus is strikingly the same. Um, We see it over and over again in the gospel accounts. He never bullies He never even kind of tries to persuade people against their will, so to speak. You have these um, repeated instances where people come to Jesus and they're like, I'm all in, I want to follow you. Um, And instead of, you know, closing the deal, he frequently probes their keenness. Um, He tells them to count the cost. He speaks to them cryptically. He kind of puts them off in some way. This is not a, like, he's not a top 10 tips for recruiting new disciples kind of guy. One of the most poignant moments in the Gospels, I think, is uh, Jesus' lament over the city of Jerusalem, um, over his people and their ages-long refusal to accept that invitation that Isaiah um, gave them. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing There's none of this, you know, it's for their own good, they just don't know it, they'll appreciate it later on. He preserves our will inviolate, even when we choose to do terrible or just dumb things with it. And if we turn to that strange story um, that we heard read earlier of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, we see this whole pattern of non-coerciveness played out in miniature. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now Jesus is hungry and Jesus is God. Like he could tell the stones to become bread. Later on, he'll actually do more or less just this. He'll feed crowds of thousands with just couple of loaves, a few fish. But here, he refuses. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, later on, 
Jesus will walk through crowds who are trying to kill him, totally untouched. He'll be miraculously protected in just this way. But here, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The rest of the New Testament makes it clear in no uncertain terms that this is, in fact, God's endgame, that uh, every knee, every ruler and authority is going to bow before Jesus. But here, of course, he refuses what's offered. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The 17th century poet John Milton wrote a very famous poem called Paradise Lost, which is about Adam and Eve and the fall of man. He also wrote a much less famous poem called Paradise Regained. And when he writes about the restoration of paradise, he doesn't write about what you think he might. He doesn't write about the end days and the new creation. Um, He doesn't write about the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, or even the incarnation, the Christmas story. He writes about this. He writes about this story, um, the story of Jesus' temptation. This is how paradise is regained. This is the Messiah that God gives us. He's not a thundering conqueror. He's not a strong man or a showman or a salesman. He is a suffering Messiah. He's born into obscurity. He leads a life of poverty and hardship. He's misunderstood and then killed by the people that he came to save. The temptation that Satan offers Jesus here is the temptation of the shortcut. Here's the outcome you want. You have the power to affect it, so just make it happen. Why move thy feet so slow to what is best is how Milton's Satan jeers at Jesus. Why move thy feet so slow to what is best? But Jesus knows that the weight of the crown that he wants is via the crown of thorns. The suffering Messiah is necessary if God wants to rule over a free and loved and loving people. Jesus' invitation to take up our cross and follow him has got to be about the least manipulative invitation in history. The cross of Christ has got to be about the least coercive act in history. I think we as well are familiar with the temptation of the shortcut in the context of the problems that we've been talking about, the, uh, the temptation to shut other people down or to shoot other people down, to ridicule or to silence them, um, to bully them into line. Uh, if we are people who follow a God of forbearance and sublime restraint, a God who places this astronomically high premium on human will and freedom, then I think that means that we as individuals and as a Christian community need to honour that premium, that freedom, in the ways that we treat each other. That means that our private and our public conversations will be characterised by humility and by love, that we won't write off people we disagree with, we won't speak of or to them with contempt. Um, In the context of church community, I think one of the things it means is that we won't be made anxious or angry, defensive by disagreement. We won't try to manipulate or to guilt anybody into acting a certain way um, or towing the party line. We will choose to follow the example of our father and the example of our brother, Jesus. 
This is challenging enough when we're talking about our own impulse to kind of suppress or control or shoot down other people. But what about when they treat us with contempt um, or try to shut us down? What is the Christian response to that? One framework for thinking about this that I found uh, quite helpful comes from the field of psychology. It's a concept that psychologists apparently call non-complementary behaviour. Um, complementary with an E, not an I. Uh, so as a rule, people generally respond to each other in complementary ways. If you're kind to me, then I'll be kind to you. If you're hostile to me, I'll be hostile right back. Uh, Non-complementary behaviour, so meeting anger or hatred with warmth and with love, is incredibly difficult to do. But it's also incredibly powerful. It has the power to um, completely change the temperature of a conversation to disarm or to diffuse a situation, to flip the usual script of how our interactions go. I began this morning by talking about that tweeted photo of two friends who disagree. Uh, here's a very different story of um, friendship across lines of disagreement. Daryl Davis is an African-American blues musician and a Christian. And he has, for the last 30 years, made a hobby of befriending Ku Klux Klan members, um, white supremacists. He has, according to him, accidentally persuaded perhaps 200 of them to abandon the Klan. He's reported to have a wardrobe full of um, Klan robes that they've handed over to him as they've quit. Davis says, I never set out to convert anyone in the clan. I just set out to get an answer to my question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I simply gave them a chance to get to know me and treat them the way I want to be treated. They come to their own conclusion that this ideology is no longer for them. This surely is the way of Jesus. You know, why move thy feet so slow to what is best? because maybe that's the only way to really get there. To love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Jesus is a script flipper, and we're called to be as well. God's actions towards us are essentially non-complementary. Uh, ours is a non-complementary gospel. When we were his enemies, God sent his son among us to die for us. He met our hostility with abounding sacrificial love. The more deeply that we know this undeserved grace that God has shown us in order to turn us from enemies into friends, the more naturally we will extend that same grace to others, no matter how fundamental our disagreements with them. Of course, ultimately, although our God is profoundly non-coercive, ultimately, his will will be done. Uh, it's customary now to be cynical about the state of public debate and the level of ignorance or hostility in the way that we all talk to each other these days. Um, but the promise of God is that truth will prevail, that justice will prevail, that love is going to prevail. Uh, this is how the chapter that we read from Isaiah concludes. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We can entrust control, sovereignty, truth to God 
in faith that he's going to bring his purposes to pass without us you know, shouting others down in order to achieve them. Uh, in the meantime, as we wait for that day, my prayer for us is one that David prays at the end of Psalm 19. He says, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen.